reading from 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 1-8. through 8. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, Godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's, this is God's word. You may be seated. Good evening. If you would like a sermon outline and did not pick one up, you can raise your hand, and some of our servant-minded folks will make sure that you get one quickly. If you're joining us tonight by streaming, we're glad that you have chosen to join us and to participate in this worship service with us. And if you'd like to open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, in just a moment, we'll be digging into this text. Anyone else wanting one of those outlines? Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that your name may be hallowed and revered. And Father, we are grateful that you have given us today what we need. And thank you, Lord, for making life in your Son possible. We pray that our faith might continue to deepen, that we might grow in the path that you have given us as your people and Father, we pray that as you use us as your tools, that you will be glorified. Be with us now as we look at your word. We pray for eyes that are open and ears that hear, that our hearts might be soft, that you might continue to mold and to shape us and to help us to grow more and more into the people that you would have us be who look like Christ. Father, forgive us, and we freely acknowledge that we are dependent on all the good gifts that you give us and your grace. In your Son's name we pray, amen. The letter of 2 Peter. This letter represents an urgent message from an aged apostle. It's a message that is as relevant today 
as it was in that first century for those first readers. In fact, because many people today do not understand that there is anything solid for them to hang on to, it is especially poignant. Consider the, the setting for this letter, the, when Peter wrote this. It's about 35 years after Jesus died on the cross. About three decades have gone by as that unstoppable church has continued to grow and expand. The gospel's being proclaimed. More and more people are, are coming to respond to Jesus as Lord. The year that he's taking that pen and, and scratching it across either that papyrus or or vellum, it's about 65 to 67 A.D. It was just probably about a few years before this, in A.D. 64, that Rome is set afire. And, and that poor part of Rome, it burns down. Rumors start to spread that um, Nero is responsible for this. And, and Nero turns around and says, no, it's the Christians that have burned Rome. And he unleashes a fierce persecution against Christians within Rome. As Peter is preparing to write, that Roman persecution has broken out and it's in full force. And undoubtedly, Nero's torture and execution of Christians reminded Peter of Jesus' earlier words to him. Perhaps he is already imprisoned. Jesus told him, I tell you the solemn truth. When you were young, you tied your clothes around you and went wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will tie you up and bring you where you do not want to go. Now Jesus said this, to indicate clearly by what kind of death Peter was going to glorify God. So Peter is now an aged man. And it's coupled together with Nero's persecution having broken out there in Rome against the church. And Peter expects he's going to die very soon. And so he wrote in this letter, I know that my tabernacle will soon be removed. Because our Lord Jesus Christ revealed this to me. Indeed, I will also make every effort that after my departure, you have a testimony of these things. I, I want you to know these things. Why is Peter writing? He's writing with a sense of urgency because he knows his life is short and he intends to re-emphasize to a Christian community that's going to outlive him what they can hang on to for their present and their future. And so he writes in chapter 1, I intend to remind you constantly of these things, even though you know them and are well established in the truth that you now have. Indeed, as long as I am in this tabernacle, I consider it right to stir you up by way of reminder. Notice that this quote comes from the 12th and 13th verse of chapter 1. He has barely gotten into this letter. And at this point, Peter has already outlined three ideas that are very significant. That he wants the church 
to be reminded of that they'll hang on to after he goes. You see, Peter's not trying to press their minds nor our minds into new material and new ideas at this point. Rather, his goal was to reinforce some very important truths. Now, before we dig into what Peter was referring to by these things, let's remember that when we became disciples of Christ, our lives became intertwined with the story, with the narrative that is bigger than our own. And there's elements of that story about what God is doing through Christ in this world and how Christ is impacting our lives. There are elements of that story that Peter is going to rivet our minds upon. And if we will view our lives through the lens of what God is doing in this world, and if in our minds we will repeat over and over those truths about Christ that Peter is about to push our minds into, then these urgent words that he's offering the church become part of a reliable, life-shaping narrative. A narrative that we can firmly hold on to. So what is the first thing that Peter wants us to focus on? He reminds us that the story of our life in Christ, it doesn't start with us. But rather, it begins with what God has already done for us. God's power has provided everything we need. God's power has provided everything we need for life and godliness. His divine power has bestowed on us everything necessary for life and godliness through the rich knowledge of the one who called us by his own glory and excellence. Through these things, he has bestowed upon us his precious and most magnificent promises, so that by means of what was promised, you may become partakers of the divine nature after escaping the worldly corruption that is produced by evil desire. What a comforting thought! As he opens this letter, he says, God's power has supplied everything we need for life and godliness. God has provided a knowledge and a message that can lead us into everything that we need. But there's also hints of more of what God's power has done here. Frequently, Peter is, as he writes about salvation, about being saved... He uses this language of life. He, he uses the language of born again. And that God has enabled us to be born again. That starting that new life. And he says God's power, his divine power has enabled you to have this life. It might be that Peter is also looking at God's power providing everything we need to be transformed from our broken, fractured lives corroded by sin into becoming partakers of the new life made possible by Christ, promised in the gospel. And this message stands in contrast, stark contrast, to the religions of the world where the teaching is that obtaining the goal, whatever that goal might be, is based on and dependent upon what you can do and what you can achieve. 
No, God has provided everything. The question is, will someone respond to it? This, this language of God's power providing all that we need for life, we find echoing in, in the Apostle Paul. We're going to be studying the letter to the Ephesians very soon. And in that letter, as Paul would write to the church at Ephesus, he says that God's power has been sufficient in providing everything we need to make us into new people, those the saved. Here's how he puts it. He starts off in chapter 1, verse 17, speaking about how he wants them to know about God and know about the power of God for the believer. I pray that you may know what is the incomparably greatness of his power toward us who believe. Well, what are you talking about, Paul? And then Paul provides an illustration of this power of God for the believer. He says, remember what God did when Christ was dead? This power he exercised in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. It wasn't just that he brought him to life again, but he brought him to life and then exalted him into the heavenly realms. And just as God's power has raised up Christ from being physically dead, Paul is letting his readers know that God has used that same power to take us from being spiritually dead in order to make us alive with Christ and exalt us with Christ into the heavenly realms. You see, although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly lived, and he's writing to Christians, so that this is who you used to be before you came to Christ, in which you formerly lived according to this world's present path. But in spite of all of where you were, God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though you were dead in transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. It's a gift. You don't deserve this. And then he goes on to, to point and make this emphasis very clear. It's not by works. You can't achieve or earn this. What does the church need to be reminded of as it goes forward? The very first significant idea Peter wants to impress upon our minds is God's power has provided everything we need for life and for godliness. It's not dependent upon us to create it or discover it through some mystical journey. He's provided it. A second big idea that Peter immediately unfolds and unpacks before us is the Lord is coming. The church needs to be reminded that the Lord is coming. And if we will live with the awareness that, that not only God has provided us with everything we need for life and godliness, but also that the Lord is coming, these truths from this life-shaping narrative become intertwined with our lives and they shape how we live. You see, not only has God acted in the past in saving us, but Peter looks forward to the story about what God will yet do. The Lord is going to return. And faithful Christians can expect an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. will be richly provided. This is the truth about the future of the world. The truth about our future. 
One day the Lord will return in glory, and the day of judgment will have arrived. For those in Christ, it's going to be a day of rejoicing and, and a blessing. For others, it'll be a day of deep despair. And we don't want to think about that glibly. But people are going to realize on that day that some people realize that they're unprepared to enter into God's judgment. Why are they unprepared? God provided everything that's needed. Well, maybe they thought they had more time. Maybe they discredited God's word. Maybe they were so preoccupied with their own agendas that they never took the gospel seriously. Maybe they valued the opinions of what others thought or they were embarrassed to acknowledge their need for Christ. There's many possibilities. But not only does Peter quickly introduce Jesus' return in this letter as something he wants to remind us about, but this letter is permeated with this message regarding that last day. Chapter 1, he goes on to say, we made known to you the power and return of our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, the Lord knows how to reserve the unrighteous for punishment at the day of judgment, especially those who indulge their fleshly desires and despise authority. Chapter 3, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief when it comes. The heavens will disappear with a horrific noise, and the celestial bodies will melt away in a blaze and the earth and every deed on it will be laid bare. The heavens will be burned up and dissolved, and the celestial bodies will melt away in a blaze. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness truly resides. What would Peter have us remember? Well, a third thing. He commands us to be diligently intense in living for Christ. Since God has provided everything needed for life and godliness, Peter commanded, for this reason, make every effort. Make every effort to add to your faith excellence, to excellence knowledge, to knowledge self-control, and so forth. The disciple is to deliberately seek to grow in these Christian virtues. And then just in case we miss the intensity he's trying to describe to us with this language of make every effort, he repeats it again just a few verses later. Therefore, after having described all this, brothers and sisters, make every effort to be sure of your calling and election. For by doing this, you will never stumble. Well, I can imagine... Some people reading this last verse and saying, wait a minute, Peter. If God has provided everything we need for life and godliness, why is there the, this necessity to be so intense? I mean, this sounds like we need to earn it. I mean, it sounds a little bit like you're, you're foisting works on us in what we do. If we ask such a question... 
we might be revealing that in our perspective there is only one motive for being in diligent, for being intense. And that, might, that would be, in our thoughts, working to earn salvation, but there's other motives for being intense. For example, one would be gratitude. A profound gratitude to God for all that he has done for us. A realization of how terribly lost we've been. And now, look what he's given us. We don't deserve it. And to respond to that with an intense gratitude in living for him. But as we look at what he says in this verse, this verse says nothing about earning anything. In fact, he's just told us that God has provided everything we need. So, so Peter, why are you telling us to make every effort? Well, Peter wrote that such intensity could lead to never stumbling. You see, he's encouraging us to not lose what we already have. Perhaps if we go back to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it can help us wade through these thoughts with a little greater clarity. You remember in Ephesians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 5 and 8, Paul says that we're saved by grace. It, it's a gift. But let's not miss what he says two verses later. He says, God has created us to be these new creatures. We're his workmanship. And he's given us a purpose to fulfill. In his words, for you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. So you see, it's in view of all that God has done and what God is striving to do with us that Paul is going to draw a conclusion about our calling. In those first chapters, 1 to 3, he says, here's the plan of God. It's fantastic. He's got this plan to unite everything in heaven and earth and in Christ. And he's, going, he's taken you who were far from Christ and he's brought you close through the blood of Christ. And, and he's made you these new creatures. In view of all that God has done and is doing and his plan on who you are to be in this project of his, he then concludes in chapter 4 and verse 1, I therefore urge you to live worthily of the calling with which you have been called. What's that calling, Paul? Look at who Christ has made you to be. Look who God has made you to be. Now live according to that calling of being the people of God. This new workmanship who are going to be his tools in this world. There's that language of calling again that Peter uses. You see, being saved by grace is not at all at conflict with our genuine need to pursue living worthily of the calling that we have in Christ, in being God's people. We're to live out the ramifications of our salvation. And as Paul would warn elsewhere, like Colossians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, to deviate from this path causes us to miss being holy, to miss being blameless before the Lord. Well, these thoughts of Paul accord well with what Peter is writing in 2 Peter chapter 1. We're to be deliver, deliberate in living up to who God has made us to be, this calling, so that we do not get off course and fall away. Often, Peter's going to use this language of stumbling and falling to refer to those who are lost, such as unbelievers in 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8, 
or, or those that were believers but have been led astray, as in 2 Peter 3 and verse 17. And in this context, he's contrasting this stumbling and falling away with those who are certain and are walking in the way that they ought to. Through the gospel, God invites us to participate in what he's doing. Jesus said, you know, many are called, but few are chosen. Through the gospel, God broadcasts his invitation. It's to us, it's to our neighbors, it's to San Antonio, it's to the world to become part of what he's doing and rescuing us, joining us together. All of that plan that's unveiled there in Ephesians. And those who respond to the call are the chosen. And so Peter says, make every effort to remain where God has placed you. I teach a, a weekly class at the retirement community just behind our building. A World War II pilot suggested one time that the list of virtues here in chapter 1, that was in our scripture reading, with its promise of never falling, reminded him of flying an airplane. You see, he said, a pilot checks a whole series of gauges and instruments. And if he pays attention to all the gauges and instruments, he stays on the right course and he arrives where he's supposed to be headed. As Christians, God has provided everything we need for life and godliness. And because of God's call and election, we can know we are saved. But if you find a disciple who has fallen away from Christ... I can show you someone who did not make every effort in paying attention to their instrument panel. Perhaps their, their faith stagnated and stalled. Maybe it was some sort of a crisis that, that came into their life and they didn't pay attention to their faith and the crisis became a thorn that grew up and it choked it so that the Word did not produce in their life what it should. Or maybe self-control failed, or godliness floundered, sin entered, and, and then the sin became known perhaps, and, and they forsook the assembly because they were embarrassed. And then they go on to live a life that begins to make steps, and a pattern is formed that their path now is going in a different direction than in serving Christ. And who they are and their story changes. And they forget, as Peter reminds us, they forget that they have been forgiven and that God has put them on this new course and that this is how they are to grow. Well, Peter, Peter tells us that if we'll keep our eyes on growing in faith and in excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, unselfish love, we're not going to stray off course and into disaster. And whereas here, Peter encourages us to live with a deliberate intensity for God because of the past, what he's done in, in saving us, later in this letter, we discover that he's also going to say, be intense because of the future, the day of the Lord's return. Since all these things are to melt away in this manner, what sort of people must we be conducting our lives in holiness and godliness while waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. And then in response to that day coming, he says, strive. There's that make every effort again. Strive to be found at peace without spot or blemish when you come into his presence.
knowing what is going to happen, should also cause us to prepare for the future. And so this letter of Second Peter, it opens with urgent words, urgent words for a new generation of Christians. He says, God has prepared everything, pr- provided everything you need for life and godliness. The day of the Lord is coming, and make every effort to be where you need to be and, and growing as you ought to grow. And having emphasized these three points, we know what Peter would say if he could come here tonight. And if he could say, you know, here's points one, two, and three, what would he say next? Well, we can know what he would say next because he wrote it. What he wrote is that you can know that this story is reliable. That the life-shaping narrative is dependable. He goes on to say, For we did not follow cleverly concocted fables when we made known to you the power and return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how do you know that his return is, is, is certain? And he goes, No, we were eyewitnesses of his grandeur. We have already seen a glimpse, a glimmer of his glory. The story that one day everything will change as Jesus returns with power and glory is not just some concocted story awash among the ideas of religiosity in the world about spirituality. No, this story is not like other religious teachings, Peter. And Peter says, how do I know? Because I've already seen something of his glory. I was there on the mountain. Peter writes, I'm about to die. And I want you to remember, I saw his glory. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory. This is my dear son in whom I am delighted. And when this voice was conveyed from heaven, we ourselves heard it. I was there. I saw. I heard. For we were with him on that holy mountain. Because of what has already happened, what I experienced, I know that the story about his return is also reliable and true. You see, Jesus was not just a great ethical teacher. The Father recognized him, and he received glory and honor from the Father. Peter then goes on and says, let me point to the reliability of Scripture. That's another reason that you know these things are certain. Moreover, we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. These three points I've made to stand in Peter's shoes, these three points I've made, this urgent message to the church as you press on to the future. I want you to remember that God has provided everything that we need for life and godliness. I want you to remember that Jesus will return. I want you to remember to be diligent. And why? Because this message is reliable. It's true. I've already seen something of the glory of the Son of God. As humans, all of us live our lives with a little story that's going on in our head. A story that informs us who we are. Those, those little thoughts 
that we hear over and over. A story that tells us what this world is all about and what we can expect. And God invites us to make our story part of his grand story of what he is doing in the world through Christ. And Peter encourages us to grasp firmly on that life-changing narrative for what God has done for us in Christ and what he will yet do. As I read 2 Peter, these are encouraging words. <laughs> these are encouraging words for God's people and a reminder of who we are and how we need to live. It might be this, that this evening someone has a prayer request that they'd like to bring before the elders, and they'll be just down here in just a second. Or it might be that someone has not yet given their life to the Lord and responded to him and, been, and be buried with him in baptism and raised up into that new life that God's power makes possible, that transformation that he works in our lives. Whatever the need, let it be known while we stand and sing. Oh uh-huh.